Chapter Two of Elsie Venner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley M. Elsie Venner by Oliver Wendell Holmes. The Student and His Certificate. Bernard C. Langdon, a young man attending medical lectures at the school connected with one of our principal colleges, remained after the lecture one day and wished to speak with the professor. He was a student of Mark, first favorite of his year, as they say, of the Derby Colts. There are in every class half a dozen bright faces to which the teacher naturally directs his discourse, and by the intermediation of whose attention he seems to hold that of the mass of listeners among these someone is pretty sure to take the lead by virtue of a personal magnetism or some peculiarity of expression which places the face in quick sympathetic relations with the lecturer this was a young man with such a face and i found for you have guessed that i was the professor above mentioned that when there was anything difficult to be explained or when i was bringing out some favorite illustration of a nice point as, for instance, when I compared the cell growth by which nature builds up a plant or an animal, to the glass floor a similar mode of beginning, always with a hollow sphere or vesicle, whatever he is going to make, I naturally looked in his face and gauged my success by its expression. It was a handsome face, a little too pale, perhaps, and would have borne something more of fullness without becoming heavy. I put the organization to which it belongs in section B of class 1 of my Anglo-American Anthropology unpublished. The jaw in this section is but slightly narrowed, just enough to make the width of the forehead tell more decidedly. The mustache often grows vigorously, but the whiskers are thin. The skin is like that of Jacob rather than Esau's. One string of the animal nature has been taken away but this gives only a greater predominance to the intellectual cords. To see just how the vital energy has been toned down, you must contrast one of this section with a specimen of section A of the same class. Say, for instance, one of the old-fashioned, full-whiskered, red-faced, roaring, big commodores of the last generation, whom you remember, at least by their portraits, in ruffled shirts, looking as hardy as butchers and as plucky as bull-terriers, with their hair combed straight up from their foreheads, which were not commonly very high or broad. The special form of physical life I have been describing gives you a right to expect more delicate perceptions and a more reflective nature than you commonly find in shaggy-throated men clad in heavy suits of muscles. The student lingered in the lecture room, looking all the time as if he wanted to say something in private, and waiting for two or three others who were still hanging around to be gone. Something is wrong, I said to myself when I noticed his expression. Well, Mr. Langdon, I said to him when we were alone, can I do anything for you today? You can, sir, he said. I am going to leave the class for the present and keep school. Why, that's a pity, and you so near graduating. You better stay and finish this course and take your degree in the spring, rather than break up your whole plan of study. I can't help myself, sir, the young man answered. There's trouble at home and they could not keep me here as they have done. So I must look out for myself for a while. It's what I've done before, and am ready to do again. I came to ask you for a certificate of my fitness to teach a common school, or a high school, if you think I am up to that. Are you willing to give it to me? Willing, yes, to be sure, but I don't want you to go. 
Stay, we'll make it easy for you. There's a fund. We'll do something for you, perhaps. Then you can take both the annual prizes if you like, and claim them in money if you want more than medals. I have thought it over, he answered, and have pretty much made up my mind to go. A perfectly gentlemanly young man, of courteous address and mild utterance, but means as least as much as he says. There are some people whose rhetoric consists of a slight habitual understatement. I often tell Mrs. Professor that one of her, I think it so's, is worth the Bible oath of all the rest of the household, that they know it so. When you find a person a little better than his word, a little more liberal than his promise, a little more than borne out in his statement by his facts, a little larger indeed than in speech, you recognize a kind of eloquence in that person's utterance not laid down in Blair or Campbell. This was a proud fellow, self-trusting, sensitive, with family recollections that made him unwilling to accept the kind of aid which many students would have thankfully welcomed. I know him too well to urge him, after the few words which imply that he was determined to go. Besides, I have great confidence in young men who believe in themselves, and are accustomed to rely on their own resources from an early period. When a resolute young fellow steps up to the great bully, the world, and takes him boldly by the beard, he is often surprised to find it come off in his hands, and that it was only tied on to scare away timid adventurers. I have seen young men more than once, who came to a great city without a single friend, support themselves and pay for their education, lay up money in a few years, grow rich enough to travel, and establish themselves in life, without ever asking a dollar of any person which they had not earned. But these are exceptional cases. There are horse tamers, born so, as we all know, there are women tamers, who bewitch the sex as the pied piper bedeviled the children of Hamelin. And there are world tamers, who can make any community, even a Yankee one, get down and let them jump on its back as easily as Mr. Rary's saddle cruiser. Whether Langdon was of this sort or not I could not say positively, but he had spirit, and, as I have said, a family pride which would not let him be dependent. New England Brahmin caste often gets blended with connections of political influence or commercial distinction. It is a charming thing for the scholar, when his fortune carries him in this way into some of the old families, who have fine old houses, and city lots that have risen in the market, and names written in all the stock books of all the dividend-paying companies. His narrow study expands into a stately library, his books are counted by thousands instead of hundreds, and his favorites are dressed in gilded calf in place of plebeian sheepskin, or its pauper substitutes of cloth and paper. Reverend Jebediah Langdon, grandfather of our young gentleman, had made an advantageous alliance of this kind. Miss Dorothea Wentworth had read one of his sermons which had been printed by request, and came deeply interested in the young author, whom she had never seen. Out of this circumstance grew a correspondence, an interview, a declaration, a matrimonial alliance, and the family of half a dozen children. Wentworth Langdon, Esquire, was the oldest of these, and lived in the old family mansion. Unfortunately, that principle of the diminution of estates by division, to which I have referred, rendered it somewhat difficult to maintain the establishment upon the fractional income which the proprietor received from his share of the property. Wentworth Langdon, Esquire, represented a certain intermediate condition of life not at all infrequent in our old families. 
he was the connecting link between the generation which lived in ease and even a kind of state upon its own resources and the new brood which must live mainly by its wits or industry and make itself rich or shabbily subside into that lower stratum known to social geologists by a deposit of kidderminster carpets and the peculiar aspect of the fossils constituting the family furniture and wardrobe this slack-water period of a race which comes before the rapid ebb of its prosperity is familiar to all who live in cities there are no more quiet inoffensive people than these children of rich families just above the necessity of active employment yet not in a condition to place their own children advantageously if they happen to have families many of them are content to live unmarried some mend their broken fortunes by prudent alliances and some leave a numerous progeny to pass into the obscurity from which their ancestors emerged so that you may see on handcarts and cobbler stall names which a few generations back were upon parchments with broad seals and tombstones with armorial bearings in a large city this class of citizens is familiar to us in the streets they are very courteous in their salutations they have time enough to bow and take their hats off which of course no business man can afford to do their beavers are smoothly brushed and their boots well polished all their appointments are tidy they look the respectable walking gentleman to perfection they are prone to habits they frequent reading-rooms insurance offices they walk the same streets at the same hours so that one becomes familiar with their faces and persons as a part of the street furniture there is one curious circumstance that all city people must have noticed which is often illustrated in our experience of the slack-water gentry we shall know a certain person by his looks familiarly for years but never have learned his name about this person we shall have accumulated no little circumstantial knowledge thus his face figure gait his mode of dressing of saluting perhaps even of speaking may be familiar to us yet who he is we know not in another department of our consciousness there is a very familiar name which we have never found the person to match we have heard it so often that it has idolized itself and became one of that multitude of permanent shapes which walk the chambers of the brain in velvet slippers in the company of falstaff and hamlet and general washington and mr pickwick sometimes the person dies but the name lives on indefinitely but now and then it happens, perhaps after years of this independent existence of the name and its shadowy image in the brain, on the one part, and the person and all its real attributes, as we see them daily, on the other, that some accident reveals their relation, and we find the name we have carried so long in our memory belongs to the person we have known so long as a fellow citizen. Now the slack. Water gentry are among the persons most likely to be the subjects of this curious divorce of title and reality. The reason that, playing no important part in the community, there is nothing to tie the floating name to the actual individual, as is the case with the men who belong in any way to the public, while yet their names have a certain historical currency, and we cannot help meeting them, either in their haunts or going to and from them. To this class belonged Wentworth Langdon, Esquire. He had been dead-headed into the world some fifty years ago, and had sat with his hands in his pockets, staring at the show ever since. I shall not tell you, for reasons before hinted, the whole name of the place in which he lived. 
i will only point you in the right direction by saying that there are three towns lying in a line with each other as you go down east each of them with a port in its name and each of them having a peculiar interest which gives it individuality in addition to the oriental character they have in common i need not tell you that these towns are newburyport portsmouth and portland the oriental character they have in common consists in their large square palatial mansions with sunny gardens round them the two first have seen better days they are in perfect harmony with the condition of weakened but not impoverished gentility each of them is a paradise of demi-fortunes each of them is of that intermediate size between a village and a city which any place has outgrown when the presence of a well-dressed stranger walking up and down the main street ceases to be a matter of public curiosity and private speculation as frequently happens during the busier months of the year in considerable commercial centres like salem they both have grand old recollections to fall back upon times when they looked forward to commercial greatness and when the portly gentlemen in cocked hats who built their now decaying wharves and sent out their ships all over the world dreamed that their fast-growing port was to be the tyre or the carthage of the rich british colony great houses like that once lived in by lord timothy dexter in newburyport remain as evidence of the fortunes amassed in these places of old other mansions like the rockingham house in portsmouth look at the white horse's tail before you mount the broad staircase show that there was not only wealth but style and state in these quiet old towns during the last century it is not with any thought of pity or depreciation that we speak of them in a certain sense decayed towns they did not fulfil their early promise of expansion but they did remain incomparably the most interesting places of their size in any of the three northernmost new england states they have even now prosperity enough to keep them in good condition and offer the most attractive residences for quiet families which if they had been english would have been lived in a palazzo at genoa or pisa or some other continental newburyport or portsmouth as for the last of the three ports or portland it is getting too prosperous to be as attractive as its less northerly neighbours meant for a fine old town to ripen like a cheshire cheese within its walls of ancient rhyme burrowed by crooked alleys and mottled with venerable mould it seems likely to sacrifice its mellow future to a vulgar material prosperity still it remains invested with many of its old charms as yet and will forfeit its place among this admirable trio only when it gets a hotel in equivocal marks of having been built and organized in the present century it was one of the old square palaces of the north in which bernard langdon the son of wentworth was born if he had had the luck to be an only child he might have lived as his father had done letting his meagre competence smoulder on almost without consuming like the fuel in an air-tight stove but after master bernard came miss dorothea elizabeth wentworth langdon and then master william pepperell langdon and others equally well named a string of them looking when they stood in a row in prayer time as if they would fit a set of pandean pipes of from three feet upward in dimensions the door of the air-tight stove has to be opened under such circumstances you may well suppose so it happened that our young man had been obliged from an early period to do something to support himself and found himself stopping short in his studies by the inability of the good people at home to furnish him the present means of support as a student 
you will understand now why the young man wanted me to give him a certificate of his fitness to teach and why i did not choose to urge him to accept the aid which a meek country boy from a family without anti-revolutionary recollections would have thankfully received go he must that was plain enough he would not be content otherwise he was not however to give up his studies and as it is customary to allow half-time to students engaged in school-keeping that is to count a year so employed if the student also keep on with his professional studies as equal to six months of the three years he is expected to be under an instructor before applying for his degree he would not necessarily lose more than a few months of time he had a small library of professional books which he could take with him so he left my teaching and that of my estimable colleagues carrying with him my certificate that mr bernard c langdon was a young gentleman of excellent moral character of high intelligence and good education and that his services would be of great value in any school academy or other institution where young persons of either sex were to be instructed i confess that expression either sex ran a little thick as i may say from my pen for although the young man bore a very fair character and there was no special cause for doubting his discretion i considered him altogether too good-looking in the first place to be let loose in a room full of young girls i didn't want him to fall in love just then and if half a dozen girls fell in love with him as they most assuredly would and brought into too near relations with him why there was no telling what gratitude and natural sensibility might bring about certificates are for the most part like ostrich eggs the giver never knows what is hatched out of them but once in a thousand times they act as curses are said to come home to roost give them often enough until it gets to be a mechanical business and some day or other you will get caught warranting somebody's ice not to melt in any climate or somebody's razors to be safe in the hands of the youngest children i had an uneasy feeling after giving the certificate it might be all right enough but if it happened to end badly i should always reproach myself there was a chance certainly that it would lead him or others into danger or wretchedness anyone who looked at this young man could not fail to see that he was capable of fascinating and being fascinated those large dark eyes of his would sink into the white soul of a young girl as the black cloth sunk into the snow in franklin's famous experiments or on the other hand if the rays of passionate nature should ever be concentrated on them they would be absorbed into the very depths of his nature and then his blood would turn to flame and burn his life out of him until his cheeks grew as white as the ashes that cover a burning coal i wish i had not said either sex in my certificate an academy for young gentlemen now that sounds cool and unimaginative a boys school that would be a very good place for him some of them are pretty rough but there is nerve enough in that old wentworth strain of blood he can give any country fellow of the common stock twenty pounds and hit him out of time in ten minutes but to send such a young fellow as that out of girls nesting to give this falcon a free pass into all the dovecotes i was a fool that's all i brooded over the mischief which might come out of these two words until it seemed to me that they were charged with destiny i could hardly sleep for thinking what a train i might have been laying which might take a spark any day and blow up nobody knows whose peace or prospects what i dreaded most was one of those miserable matrimonial misalliances where a young fellow who does not know himself as yet flings his magnificent future into the checked apron lap of some fresh-faced half-read country girl 
no more fit to be made with him than her father's horse to go in double harness with flora temple to think of the eagle's wings being clipped so that he shall never lift himself over the farmyard fence such things happen and always must because as one of us said a while ago a man always loves a woman and a woman a man unless some good reason exists to the contrary you think yourself a very facetious young man my friend but there are probably at least five thousand young women in these united states any one of whom you would certainly marry if you were thrown much into her company and nobody more attractive or near and she had no objection and you my dear young lady justly pride yourself on your discerning delicacy but if i should say that there are twenty thousand young men any one of whom if he offered his hand and heart under favourable circumstances he would first endure then pity then embrace i should be much more imprudent than i mean to be and you would no doubt throw down in a story in which i hope to interest you i had settled it in my mind that this young fellow had a career marked out for him he should begin in the natural way by taking care of poor patients as one of the public charities and work his way up to a better kind of practice better that is in the vulgar worldly sense the great and good borhov used to say as i remember very well that the poor were his best patients for god was their paymaster but everybody is not as patient as borhov nor as deserving so that the rich though not perhaps the best patients are good enough for common practitioners i suppose borhov put up with them when he could not get poor ones as he left his daughter two millions of florins when he died now if this young man once got into the wide streets he would sweep them clear of his rivals of the same standing and as i was getting indifferent to business and old dr killam was growing careless and had once or twice prescribed morphine when he meant keening there would soon be an opening into the doctor's paradise the streets with only one side to them then i would have him strike a bold stroke setting up a nice little coach and be driven round like a first-class london doctor instead of coasting about in a shabby one-horse concern and casting anchor opposite the patient's door like a cape and fishing smack by the time he was thirty he would have knocked the social pawns out of his way and be ready to challenge away from the row of great pieces in the background i would not have a man marry above his level so as to become the appendage of a powerful family connection but i would not have him marry until he knew his level that is again looking at the matter in a purely worldly point of view and not taking the sentiments at all into consideration but remember that a young man using large endowments wisely and fortunately may put himself on a level with the highest in the land in ten brilliant years of spirited unflagging labour and to stand at the very top of your calling in a great city is something in itself that is if you like money and influence and a seat on the platform at public lectures and gratuitous tickets to all sorts of places where you don't want to go and what is a good deal better than any of these things the sense of power limited it may be but absolute in its range so that all the caesars and napoleons would have to stand aside if they came between you and the exercise of your special vocation that is what i thought this young fellow might have come to and now i have let him go off into the country with my certificate that he is fit to teach in a school for either sex ten to one he will run like a moth into a candle right into one of those girls nests and get tangled up in some sentimental folly or other and there will be the end of him oh yes 
country doctor half a dollar a visit drive 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 all day get up at night and harness your own horse drive again ten miles in a snowstorm shake powders out of two vials drive back again if you don't happen to get stuck in a drift no home no peace no continuous meals no unbroken sleep no sunday no holiday no social intercourse but one eternal jog 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 in a sulky until you feel like the mummy of an indian who had been buried in the sitting position and was dug up a hundred years afterwards why didn't i warn him about love and all that nonsense why didn't i tell him he had nothing to do with it yet a while why didn't i hold up to him those awful examples i could have cited where poor young fellows who could just keep themselves afloat have hung a matrimonial millstone round their necks taking it for a life-preserver all this of two words in a certificate end of chapter two recording by ashley m